This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a 3RRR film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined tonight by Emma Westwood and Stuart Richards. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello there. Thanks for having me back on the cave, and it's nice to be on this side of the desk. Actually, it's uh, it's been a, it's been about a year since I've been operating things. So it's very wow. exciting, Thomas. It's good to see you there. Thank you. I'm looking forward to tonight's show. On tonight's show, we've got Michael Myers, a.k.a. The Shape, returns in the latest instalment of the slasher film franchise, Halloween. We've also got Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet playing real-life father and son in the, uh, in the addiction drama Beautiful Boy. But first, Backtrack Boys is a new Australian documentary by filmmaker Catherine Scott, whose previous films include the 2011 doc Scarlet Road, which looked at a sex worker who specialised in working with people with disabilities. Backtrack Boys is about a program that runs out of Armidale in country New South Wales, where at-risk teenagers, many of whom are one offence away from doing jail time, are paired up with dogs from a dog jumping team in order to give the boys and and the girls a a sense of purpose and to assist with their antisocial behaviour. The film covers a two-year period and follows the experiences of several of the boys in the program, as well as extensively covering the philosophy and methodology of the program program's founder, Bernie Shakeshaft, who is something of a classic Aussie Bushman who has an enormous empathy for the young people in his care, including the ones that many other people have given up on. Backtrack Boys has previously screened at a number of festivals around Australia, including the Sydney Film Festival and the Melbourne International Film Festival. Uh, And at both festivals, it was voted the favourite documentary feature in the audience polls. This is a film that even before its, its theatrical release last Thursday has won an enormous number of hearts. Including, I believe, yours, Emma. <laughs> it has. You were yes. t- really taken by this, weren't you? Super taken by this, actually. Uh, I think that uh, this film made some really great decisions as a, a doco. I don't. I don't think that it, its subject matter was necessarily groundbreaking in terms of uh, what we've seen in documentary films. It looked superb uh, material, but still the. What I what I really liked about uh, this film was the idea that the non-judgmental approach, shall I say, there was a lot of... I felt this film made a lot of decisions uh, that would not usually be made in a documentary. First of all, there are a lot of Indigenous kids in this, um, this backtrack program, yet it doesn't tend to make... It doesn't make a point about this is about underprivileged Indigenous children. It uh, has a... uh, These children, uh, these boys, in this case, are quite violent and have been um, involved in a number of uh, criminal activities or just spontaneous violence when they're they're pushed. Uh, Yet... um, we don't see this this violence at all on the on the screen. Um, we also have a situation where there's a father that actually appears for one of the one of the children who's a, like a central character, amazing kid too, which we will no doubt talk about. Who is? It, it's interesting because we don't get fleshed out. We get a little bit of the relationship. We don't get the full details. We just get him repentant in t- saying that he was he admits to not being equipped for as being a single father, and 
we don't really need to dig any further, but there feels like there must be more to that story for why. And this this is the character called Rusty, Russell, Rusty, and he's a 12-year-old boy. Um, he's not an Indigenous boy in this case who has really gone off the reservation and is a remarkable boy but is obviously he swears like a wharfie. He's he's a, a real character. But he's, the, he's, he's the reason the film has an M.A., He's a re- yes. <laughs> Simply because of some of the words he uses. Yeah. From a 12-year-old. Yeah. It's quite astounding <laughs> when you think about it. Uh, and yet this film, it is still so compelling, so emotional, yet it doesn't need to... Uh, it doesn't need to manipulate us. I really didn't feel it needed to manipulate us in, in any way. It was just what it showed was great. And those two characters, it's R- Rusty, who's the 12-year-old, and Zach, who's a 17-year-old Indigenous boy, that it, it primarily focuses on, and Tyson, who's another boy who's coming out of um, juvenile detention, that... And they're just such compelling characters. I mean, you know, Catherine Scott just um, she manages she managed to get these wonderful characters to follow, and they both had. Uh, I think it the 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 argument against incarceration was really really strong here. Like Zach, both of them are old souls. Like you see, like Rusty is a twelve year old. You see his eyes, and he's just. He's been through many lifetimes, you know. You look at him and you just see the lifetimes he's been through. Whereas, and he's more fiery. He's more. He's got the fire in his belly. Whereas Zach, even though he's been, uh, you know, tried for, um, you know, he eventually gets tried for some violent behaviour, is like a doe. You know, you just see this gentleness in him. And and I was just, yeah, I was totally blown away by this film. It was just completely captivating. Yeah, that argument around uh, incarceration comes out really, really well in this documentary because when it started, I was in a particular mindset and I was like, all right, this is going to play like a like a Four Corners episode and I'm ready for that and bring it on. But then the way that discussion around incarceration where it, incarceration should be about uh, rehabilitation, not punishment, mm. uh, I think is really, really interesting. And it uh, develops these figures as characters really, really, really well. And that friendship between Zach and Rusty uh, goes in really, really interesting places mm. uh, to the point where you start having expectations in terms of what they're going to do and when they do act in certain ways, it can be quite disheartening and and upsetting as the viewer when you sort of build these expectations around these these figures. Uh, but also, I mean, I just, in my notes, I've just got, how great are dogs? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I thought the dogs were going to be more of a point, though. No, um, but they are, though. And I, I think they're a really important part of this documentary, as well as obviously the program that's run. Um, on their website, in terms of like the characters, uh, one of the tabs, the detail, all the dog names. Which is really, really great. Um, (laughs) And they're rescue dogs. And they are rescue rescue dogs. But I think it it plays a really, really important part in terms of the resonance as a viewer. Because when, when, uh, for me personally, when watching this, I mean, these young people in this film are so different from me. They have different hurdles in their lives that I will never face. Uh, They talk about uh, jail passingly in a really casual manner that. I will never do. So this documentary could easily be about 
other people that I have nothing to do with that are so different from me and there's just this huge cultural divide. But then when I see the way they interact with the dogs Mm. and the power that an animal has over someone's psychological well-being, that's where that resonance starts. And even though these young people are so different from me, that there's there's a similarity here between us and them where if you're having a really rough day, having this bit of you know, quiet one-on-one time with your pet will do wonders. And sort of the, the term they use is dog valium, which I think is incredible. <laughs> and, and for me, that's where I think the magic in this documentary is, where, yes, these people are very different from us and they're going through very different hurdles, but... At the end of the day, they just love a cuddle with a dog. Yeah. Who doesn't? It's it's not a campaigning film, is it? Although no. it really presents a very strong argument against um, uh, incarceration as a, as a form of punishment, saying that these these kids, which people are re- ready to write off, have got a lot of goodness and soul and heart in them and, and can be saved. And this is just, without being sensationalist, it's showing us this is living proof of a program that works. I mean, the, 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 the one bit that um really suddenly grabbed my heartstrings out of nowhere was an early seen with Rusty, you know, this foul-mouthed kid who you just see him on these tirades <laughs> using this extraordinary language. I mean, he, he will put Malcolm Tucker to shame. <laughs> th- th- there's just one bit where he looks at the camera and just says, I am good. I know I'm good. Oh, yeah. And it was yeah. just this brief moment of realisation and all, all the kind of um, bravado fell down. Yeah. And that was a really profound moment. Mm. And, and it was, I really like the way that kind of worked in this theme of the wild dogs and the wild kids, mm. you show them love and empathy and they can achieve greatness. And you, there was that great bit where they say that they're, 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 they're dogs who compete in jumping. Even if the dog can't make the jump, though, somebody will give them a hand to get yes. them over just so they still feel a sense of accomplishment. Well, then the person does it too. You notice how it, yeah. they did it too. So it was kind of like this synergy with, with the the dogs. Mm. Uh, it, it, with Bernie, who was the the... The, the director of the program, the CEO, I guess, of the... CEO and founder. A fa- yeah. founder who ha- is a tracker himself. He learnt tracking from um, the Indigenous peoples up in Darwin. I think he was up near Darwin. And that's the whole idea of the backtrack idea is he was taught that, you know, the white fellas keep on chasing when they're supposedly tracking someone they keep on tracing but it's this idea of um studying habits and then getting in front of the person the 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 thing or whatever you're tracking and then luring them and that's what he's he uses with his program yeah i did a bit of mental gymnastics to get my head around that that, that yeah. concept which shows that he's very removed from the way i suppose we're brought up we're brought as up, white people yeah. in urban areas absolutely yeah. it reminded me a little bit of a wonderful 2011 american American documentary called Buck. Did you did you folks come no. across this? No. This was about a, a, a guy called Buck Brannerman, who is a sort of real life horse whisperer, and he had this whole philosophy of you don't break in horses. This whole practice of breaking in the horse is barbaric, and he had he had constructed this entire program, which is sort of yeah nurturing horses into trusting you, and it was this sort of philosophy that was quite new, and I imagine still is relatively unusual about how to get the best out of humans and and animals is through empathy and it's just so especially in these troubled times it's it's so essential to see that sort of kindness and empathy and love Mm. produces incredible results um because you know we're constantly i know we seem to live in this culture which is all about breaking people in and sort of you know being being 
tough to be kind mm. and, and all this kind of all this kind of nonsense. And this sort of very gentle film shows us quite the opposite. I actually I wasn't too sure about this doc at first because it sort of starts off with the kids all in relatively good places, and I was a little bit like, have we missed the good stuff? Yeah. And 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 the kids, you know what I mean? We have we, have we yeah. missed the journey. And it's the way some of the kids talk, it's like this kind of motivational jargon that's coming out of their mouths. And I feel like have they been have they been brainwashed? But it's sort of it's the kids processing their lessons, I think, and and. Mm. and means a lot to them to pass it on and then when things do go down you get a sense of how much this is sort of two steps forward one step back for them so there is plenty of drama in, in mm. this film even though it wasn't apparent at first mm. yeah i was thinking something very similar at the start of this documentary i thought like are they performing for the camera that was almost like they've been rehearsed with all of their lesson prep but then i think you are right it's them almost sort of reiterating what they've learned um, yeah. into their own way of being and yeah. i think that you, there was there was a select few so there was obviously a lot of practical decisions that had to be made in who was going to appear on camera. Obviously, not all of them. There's about a thousand people or thousand kids who have gone through the program. Uh, interestingly, I was um, I was quite caught on the idea of why there was no uh, the women went or the girls weren't shown because they did talk about fifteen girls going through the program and it was interesting because Catherine Scott is a woman uh, filmmaker and. Uh, so I kind of I reached out through people and got my answer, which was literally a practical answer, that the girls were uh, just their program was new. They only came in on Fridays and the journey had been started with the boys. Mm. So the idea is if she did a, if she got to do a sequel, she would do backtrack girls and jump in and see what was happening with them. So, yeah, just for purely practical reasons. Also... Not so practical reason, but what I liked was that she, uh, Bernie, as a character, who's, you know, a very interesting character as the founder, was not um, the fulcrum of this documentary. I didn't feel he owned it. He was there, but they didn't make it a cult of personality around him. It was more the boys that owned it and that he came in, he had some wonderful things to say and, you know, he's a very interesting man. And it would have been so easy to have made it all about him, but she didn't. Yeah, Bernie she got the saviour. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. This is what I miss about doing this show. It's when I end up liking a film even more through discussion with <laughs> yes. you guys. That's a really great thing yeah. to point out. Yeah. So, yeah, I, th this came in the surprises. I went to bed straight afterwards after seeing it and, and it stayed with me. I actually had tears in my eyes. I had to get up for a while, shake it off, have a cup of tea. <sighs> There's one scene yeah. when these kids read to dogs. Um, that, that destroyed me. <laughs> uh, I kept on thinking, yes. imagine trying to do this with cats because I'm more of a cat person. <laughs> I, I think all the kids will come out psychopaths. Yeah. Really, you know, as much as I adore cats. I have work. a cat. And I was like, Lulu, give me a cuddle. And she's like, get away from me. <laughs> but you're so fluffy, Lulu. Yeah. <laughs> cats are the worst and they're the best. <laughs> you're listening to Plato's Cave here in 3 Triple R. We've been talking about Backtrack Boys, which is on limited release right now. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Halloween is the latest film in the Halloween franchise, which began with the original 1978 film 
Halloween. Since that original film by the great John Carpenter, there have been numerous sequels, remakes and reboots, but this new one ignores all of those and functions as a direct sequel to the original film. Set 40 years after the night the criminally insane mass murderer Michael Myers carved up the residents of Haddonfield, Illinois, Myers is now imprisoned and is the subject of a true crime podcast. Meanwhile, his original intended victim, Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who resumes her iconic role, is still living with the trauma of Michael's original attack. She's now a tough and paranoid survivalist whose inability to let go of the past has made her estranged from her daughter, who's played by Judy Greer, um, although her granddaughter, who's played by Andy Matichak, is more sympathetic. So, will these women, now from three generations, plus all their innocent bystander friends, family and neighbours, have to contend with Michael should he somehow get free again? I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say yes. <laughs> this new film is directed by the highly eclectic filmmaker David Gordon Green, whose films range from indie hits such as Prince Avalanche and Joe the stoner comedies such as Pineapple Express. Green is also one of the writers, along with Danny McBride, who is mm. best known as a comedic actor. Um, it's also worth noting that this is the first time in over three decades that John Carpenter has been involved in the franchise, as he's one of the executive producers and one of the composers. So where do we all sit with this film? Do you know, I'll, I'll, I mean, I might as well reveal it now, of all the Halloween films, I've only ever seen the original. I've seen it a number of times, but I haven't seen any of the other films that have followed in, in, until now. Well, that's a, the perfect film to see before this one. Which, which somewhat <laughs> yes. worked, which somewhat worked, yes. didn't it? I mean, I, I gather there are in-jokes in this new film kind of ridiculing some of the crazy theories and places the sequels went to. Yeah. Um, I picked up on that, but otherwise, yeah, it, it kind of worked, just seeing that 78 film and now this one. Yeah. Mm. What do you think, Stewie? I look. I, I I enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> I love a review that goes. Look, I did enjoy. It. <laughs> I think it's a really fun film. It's it's really really fun. But I, in terms of horror aesthetics and scares, it, not even close for me. Um, I found it very funny and very ridiculous, as I do with a lot of those slasher films from that first cycle, starting with Halloween. But in terms of, like, jump scares and creepiness and... I mean, I'm thinking of you know, early this year we watched Hereditary, um, another really great horror film from a few years ago, It Follows. Those films really got under my skin. And even though in those figures, I mean, there's sort of something kind of stalking someone else and there's this kind of monstrosity involved with those films, uh, they, they're quite creepy. But mm. this film, I it was not creeped out whatsoever, not scared. Uh, but in, in saying that, I found it very funny. It's a very funny film, I find, and over the top and ridiculous. And, and I really appreciated that. So... Um, Jamie Lee Curtis's uh, character has this house that is decked out in all of these booby traps and when they all slowly start getting revealed they just get more and more ridiculous which I love um, and I really loved all of the flipping of the gender tropes in mm. the film uh, so and I won't spoil what they are but there's a few sort of uh, things that happen in the first Halloween uh, where it is the relationship between her and Michael Myers and often they'll flip so there's a lot of kind of repetition between the first a Halloween film and this one, but uh, Jamie Lee Curtis takes the place of mm. Michael Myers and Michael Myers, and I really loved that kind of gender flipping. Um, 
but yeah, in terms of actual horror aesthetics, I, I, for me, it, it wasn't there. Um, and I think maybe that's because he has such a, an eclectic background. Uh, so this worked more of a comedy than um, <laughs> than a horror film. I mean, the the relationship between the babysitter and the kid, she was babysitting. <laughs> they were great. That scene when they're just sort of riling each other up, is that is the scene of the film for me. And it's like... Uh, yeah, it's not, and that probably doesn't belong in a horror film. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I liked all that stuff because it made all the characters very likable. Often in slasher films, they're annoying teenagers mm-hmm. and you can't wait to see them getting carved up. Where this film, most of the characters, uh, mm. well, characters you wanted to hang around on screen. And it was kind of, I got wrapped, I got caught up in this. So it was shocking seeing how some of them died and that some of them did die. And, and the very first kill of the film is somebody you wouldn't expect to see killed. Um, and I think that nicely sets the tone of anything sort of goes. Um, mm. It's... Yeah, I, I really actually had a ball with this. For me, this is what I sort of describe as a roller coaster horror film where it doesn't get under my skin and fills me with kind of dread, like something like hereditary. Um, mm. And by no means does it reach the, pl- you know, the heights of It Follows, which mm. probably is my favourite horror of recent years uh, uh, as well. I thought that was such an artfully created film. Yeah, that's the pinnacle for me. Yeah, yeah okay. Mm. We agree. I think mm. I'm on side with you on that one. But what I really enjoyed about this, and I saw it with a group of people who are really into it, as the same way I was, is just how beautifully it constructed the tension. Often, you know, Hollywood producers will talk about the kill. They want the kills. This film wasn't really interested in doing big, elaborate kills. It was about insane tension. And I think uh, David Gordon Green really nicely mimicked um, or paid homage to, however you want to put it, what Carpenter did in the original film, which is really carefully positioning the camera, really deliberate camera movements, being very strategic about what's in frame to make you think all sorts of things are going to jump out at certain points or so you don't see certain things coming and it's just that beautiful and delicious build up of tension which I got quite gleefully giddy Mm. for I I really enjoyed cringing in my seat and and giggling like an idiot with with my uh, you know a, a, a adult fully functional members of society friends you know apparently we're all we're all normal human beings and we were all reduced to kind of yeah giggling idiots watching this film and I, I really enjoyed that sensation. It's interesting doing, you just think through what was in their heads when they decided to do this. It's interesting that it's called Halloween as well because it it sounds like it's a remake really, Mm. but it's not. It's the let's pretend all the other sequels didn't happen and this is um, 40 years later, 40 odd years later, whatever. 40. It is actually Which 40. Is yeah. kind of erasing everything that came before it. He's sort of creeping into cinema it, more and it more. It does. Um, it does happen a bit. It's, it's a bit superhero. Comic, <laughs> it's, been, it's been in comic books for decades. Exactly. But it's, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. You've got to get your head around it a bit, don't you? Yeah. So, the, but the thing with Halloween, I think uh, we, we need to acknowledge is it was so groundbreaking. It seems very much, um, if you watch Halloween now, it's a great film, you know, it, it, but it seems just... It doesn't seem anything re- remarkable, but it was a template film and it created a template for so much to come from it uh, and a beautiful, just clear template film. So this, I think, in doing uh, this sequel many years later, the idea was not to reinvent the genre but just to make a solid slasher film in the guise of its original birth film. It, it, That's it, what it felt to me. It's like. sort of in response to the decades of screams and self-aware yes. 
It, it, it definitely isn't like that. Cabin in the woods, that. all that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, it's yeah. like, let's go back to basics. Yeah, yeah. let's go back to basics. Mm. And I think it did do that very well. It means that you don't come out going, wow, this is something totally new. And I know that, for example, Sally, who's usually on this show as well, she felt that she wanted more slasher kills on scene. If you're in, on screen, if you're doing a slasher film, I want to see it on screen. Whereas it didn't really do that, for example. Yeah, that's one. That, that was yeah. one of the, my main takeaway. Which, and the more I think about it, the more I really appreciate, because it's building the tension. But the actual gore, we don't really see. There's one scene involving a head. That is all I'll say. Um, <laughs> that is very gory. But apart from that, all of the deaths actually happen off screen for most of them. Yes. Where we will just see this dismembered body, and I really appreciated that. The more I thought about it, because it is about the building of tension between Laurie and Michael Myers, and it's not about just this torture porn, which is what we've had with all well, of the well, Saw yes, films. That has been the the most recent generation of mm. horror films. Yeah, and I, I like that as well because I find the torture porn films depressing. Like I don't yeah, feel good be, watching yes. those. Where where this one was, yeah, it was a real roller coaster. Yeah, it was yeah. a theme park. Yeah. Yeah. I think th- th- what it has is um, this idea of uh, the lineage of the final girl, which is played out so strong through the first Halloween. And while it wasn't the first film to do that by any means, it's interesting, this idea that we've always celebrated the, the, the girl that has survived and, well, it's all okay, she survived. But when you look at someone like Marilyn Burns in Texas Chainsaw Massacre who's, you know, covered in blood, laughing maniacally as she's left with, you know, a leather face swirling around in the middle of the road and the same with... Laurie Strode, you know, this idea that she, um, what is she going to be like after an incredibly traumatic event? She's going to be slightly crazy. And it had an element of, from a non-horror film, you could argue, um, for me, which was uh, the Terminator franchise and that that leap from Terminator to Terminator 2, where we see... That's a great comparison. Yeah, yeah, where you see that what... Linda Hamilton has had to do her character um, in order to move on and prepare and and protect herself. And, yeah, that was really quite startling to me. I could see that. The the original film and that whole original cycle of slasher films were very much coming off the uh, the sort of collective trauma of the Vietnam War, Mm. sort of these brutalised bodies being beamed into homes and this awareness of what humanity is capable of and this sort of death of the American dream over what had happened in Vietnam as well as you know the assassination of JFK and Nixon and it was a grim time in America and there's some really great scholarly work and I mean just Google X Plato's cave host Josh Nelson yes. some great writing on horror His of the PhD. 80s yeah on horror <laughs> of the late 70s and 80s reflecting this sort of post-Vietnam trauma and I was thinking well what can we say about about this film I mean if you, if you want to get too ideologically uh, uh, kind of investigative into it i was wondering whether this it is this kind of idea of the the survivor trauma so what's happened to the generations and generations after Mm. and i don't know it feels like it kind of taps in very nicely to perhaps some of the me too movement it's sort of these these abusive men have left these women in their their wake and we see sort of three different generations of women in different Mm. ways they they respond and there's something actually i don't I like the way the film kind of resolves a lot of that and some of the interesting mirroring they do, yeah, with Laurie and Michael kind of reversing some of the, the positions. I mean, it's, it's nice fan mm. service, but it's also, I think, there's a nice 
commentary about the shift in power there. Mm. And, and this film does have a moment at the end where my heart sank, and I think the whole audience's heart sank, and we thought, oh, God, is this how it's going to go down? And then the film does a yeah. thing, and I think the audience, I was in cheered. They did manage to uh, create a sense of empowerment with her, which I thought was mm. interesting. At just just at a, a just a really base level, the the idea of where, for her to confront him, I felt comforted by. Somehow he's got he's a man, yet he manages to kill everyone in his wake. But it's like. When he gets to her, I kind of feel like it's okay. We're matched now. This is when yeah. things go. And I thought that was, you know, that, that that's quite a, a big achievement to be able to create create that feeling. Because he has a very high body count. And I'm not sure what the record is for <laughs> no. Halloween films, but... It's pretty high in this, isn't it? 19. Oh, is wow. The, is the body count for this film, which is huge. Which I think the fact that some of the victims do get character development... I think is sort of a tribute to the script hmm. uh, when so many characters are dying. Um, and so when, yeah, when uh, sort of Michael Myers comes to Laurie Strode's house, they, that's the moment where it's like, all right, the death's going to stop now. It's time for Laurie to have her mm. say. Um, so I think definitely this is uh, fitting into the Me Too movement at the moment. Yeah, and yeah. I think Danny, Danny McBride's a very interesting uh, gender writer, shall we say. I think it's very easy because he's been in such sort of, you know, mullethead comedies <laughs> well, he plays, to really dismiss him. He plays toxic men. And he I does. Think people he assume, does. therefore, he is that. He is that, but not at all. You can tell through his writing. And even in yeah. that fourth season of Eastbound and Down, which was an amazing commentary on masculinity and sport, thought such interesting writing, uh, was, you know, that was that was Danny McBride. And, you know, this sort of... He's just so aware. He has an awareness through his writing that I think comes out through this. It, look, it's definitely, uh, you know, a, fem- a, a feminist film, I don't think it's breaking ground in um, feminist, you know, filmmaking as such. I I don't think it's pushing anywhere really new. I wasn't sure about the whole idea about the Jamie Lee Curtis character being now this kind of paranoid, kind of crazed person living in the wilderness. I mean, there was a report in the paper recently, actually, about people in WA who are now doing that to prepare for the apocalypse. And they sound kind of... They sound kind of nothing. (laughs) And this film very much validates what she's doing. And I was a bit like... I mean, this is where your ideological readings of films can just fall to pieces when it's something that's just a convenient narrative device. Yeah. I mean, l- let's not get into representation of mental illness because that's going to really obliterate your enjoyment but of these films. But, um, yeah. I'll, I'll come sorry, back to sorry. <laughs> but I just want to say, but, but I think that the big kind of take-home message from this is she's a character who has not been listened to and it's an idea yes. of a woman who has suffered enormous trauma and she's not taken seriously and, and she's not listened to. And the the and idea of the... Hyst- bite people on the ass. The hysterical woman. Yeah. The idea of hysteria. Hysteria being a word that is just, uh, you know, embodied as part of, of women if anyone wants to Google it and go back and read the origins of that word. And it is it is the idea of, yeah, hysteria that comes out through this. We don't take any... She's hysterical. And you want to come She's back crazy. to the mental illness angle? Uh, you can come back to that. No, no, I, I, I was just saying, I mean, I think you're going to have trouble. I mean, th- there is a lot of stuff about how mental illness in popular culture is always portrayed pretty poorly and it's often yeah. used as a butt of jokes or the criminally in, in, insane. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, you're going to struggle with these films, but it's kind of a key part of the genre and I think it's so overtly over the top. Top. Yeah. I, I think that's how it gets. But there is, films over the top. But there is yeah. something interesting there in terms of the relationship with her daughter. 
Yes. And it is not just about her trauma, but it is also the trauma that's been later on sort of generationally been inflicted on her daughter and how her daughter has coped with this PTSD sort of sort of shaping her life. So I think there is, I mean, it is sort of, it is a horror film, but I think there's something really interesting here in terms of how someone copes with trauma in the film. Mm, mm. That's a new Halloween film. <laughs> I think, you know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> so one of those films, I don't think we need to sell it or put you off it. I think if if you <laughs> it is if anyone's is. inclined, if you're inclined go. to see it, you're going to go and yeah, you're going to go and see it. Uh, can, can I actually give a plug for another Halloween film? No, if you have to. <laughs> It's Thomas, you need to see it. Okay. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Yes. Everyone, it's Halloween in two days. Sit down and watch Season of the Witch. Fantastic That's film. That's been very much reclaimed in recent years as a, as Absolutely. a, a, a nothing, strong film. Nothing yeah. to do with Michael Myers or Jamie Lee Curtis, but a sensational film. You're listening to Plato's Cave and Emma's Random Plugs. <laughs> Three. Triple. Beautiful Boy is the English language debut feature film from Belgian filmmaker Felix van Groningen. Uh, he's probably best known for his 2012 Academy Award nominated film, The Broken Circle Breakdown, a beautiful film which I'm pretty sure we did review in this show at the time. It's a film about a couple of bluegrass musicians who are coping with their young daughter's illness. Uh, Groningen definitely seems to like heartbreaking family stories. <laughs> As, Sounds like it. Yeah, it's his thing. Beautiful Boy is based on a true story about journalist David Sheff's relationship with his heroin-addicted son, Nick. The film is based on memoirs written by both David and Nick, with Australia's Luke Davies, uh, whose credits include writing Lion, being one of the screenplay writers along with Groningen. Steve Carell plays David Sheff, and young star on the stratospheric rise, Timothy Chalamet, plays Nick Sheff. Stuart, you're something of a Timothy Chamolet fan, am I right? I'm sure in, I saw in the show notes you just wrote Chamolet in bold yeah. capital letters. I do love myself a bit of Chamolet. Uh, yeah, he's great. I think yeah. he's a wonderful actor. Uh, obviously in Call Me By Your Name, yeah. uh, brilliant performance. That's the one that kind of broke him, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, also in Lady Bird as well. Yeah, yeah, um, lovely yeah. performance. What about Interstellar? No one talks about that. Yeah, I forgot. I he wonder was in why. That. Yeah, <laughs> but he was a he was well, he's quite perfectly adequate in it. He just didn't have a big role. That's yeah. all. And that Woody Allen film that we'll probably never see. Yeah. Oh yes, yeah. that one. <laughs> Which he donated his salary. Oh really? For yeah. Working on that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, sorry, sidetracked. But yes. Yeah, this is a really wonderfully fragmented film, which I loved. Uh, I love that it's based on two, uh, two, um, two different memoirs. Two. That's the word. Yeah. Memoirs. Uh, so two different memoirs, and I really and when that sort of those two memoirs came up in the credits, and I was like, oh, that makes so much sense because this mm. is two stories being told simultaneously, and I really loved the editing of this film. It's so slick the way it's constantly. Um, shifting from past and present uh, and that really fragmented nature even kind of breaks down the scenes where at the start the scenes were only kind of half playing where we just jump straight into sort of in the middle of a fight or in the middle of some form of action uh, it really propels us through all of these years quite quickly mm. um, yeah I thought it was um, yeah I thought it was structured really really well I thought mm. I had a little bit of a, um, a concern with the structure only because I found it a little disorientating at times, just in terms of where are we sitting in, in this 
linear narrative. <laughs> is it linear? Not. I think you just need to assume it is linear, except for when you're really looking at them when the characters when they're younger. Mm. For example, the the Chalamet char- character when he's actually the actor that who's great cast play. so well. It's very well done, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, very well done. But I didn't get a sense of the two memoirs coming together. This felt really like David Chef's story to me more than anything. Uh, and and yeah, yeah, I found it just totally skewed from that angle. Not that that was a bad thing, you know, that worked really well. And it does um, give a sense of the fruitlessness of this situation and the not being able, not being empowered to do well you can't you really there's nothing you can do this Mm. is and i think this story is unfortunately something that most people will touch on in their life in some way and that's probably why it's it is resonating with people and um why the decision to make this film came about Mm. because it is a story that comes up again and again and this idea of grieving for someone while they're alive um which is really such a tragic awful thing and a really hard thing to get both the heart and mind around which is which is what came out very very strongly in this film i found but there wasn't a lot of sense of and and i think this may have been on purpose why why he was just an addictive personality Mm. that was all but there's that relentless nature to the script as well which yeah. I, I really appreciated. And the more I think about, the more I appreciate where, because it veers so sharply from like a classical sort of narrative structure, mm. it, it, there's a sense of where is it going, where's going to be the crescendo, and and where it goes, it just, it, you know there's so much more to come because there's no neat finish um, to this storyline. If he sort of does um, survive and, and, and break the addiction, there's no kind of classical ending to that. It isn't an ongoing illness that he'll have. And that's the reality for so many people. And that is the reality. Yeah, and yeah. I really love that that, appreci- that sort of touched on that. Though, I mean, I Steve Carell is really good in this film. Mm. Um, Chalamet, I thought he was really, really good when he was sober and that feeling of guilt was showing through his performance. But when he was high, I I just didn't really um, get that from him. Um, I saw another film recently, um, uh, Sauvage, which played at Cannes um, just uh, last year by Camille Vidal-Marquet. And that is sort of another film where there's sort of a French gay sex worker who um, is dealing with his own addiction issues and that actor just completely um, Felix Motar who loses himself in this role his body starts to almost disintegrate throughout the film Um, and not that I want that to happen to Chalamet (laughs) (laughs) but I just didn't really sort of get that from his performance in this yeah look I um, had similar thoughts I would actually have almost preferred it to have just been the Steve Carell story looking Mm. at his father David Sheff because I think that was the more interesting story how how this father copes um uh, the powerlessness, the the uncertainty. I mean, I, I love that there's one scene where he's just asking his son, are you high right now? And and we as the audience don't know either, and that was a really powerful scene. And I think Chalamet is his best when he's playing off Steve Carell. The bits where this film lost me were the sort of spiralling, out-of-control stuff again. And I hate to say it, but I got bored. I got really bored towards the end of this film. It just was that... I mean, and I know that's the cycle of recovery, fall from grace, hit rock bottom, and then recovery again, but there was just only so many times... 
I was able to see that. And I think the film went into some really... There were just a few scenes that felt very silly. Like, there's a bit where Steve Carell goes looking for him and it's kind of the bad streets of this American city and it looked like something from an 80s action film, <laughs> which is just kind of crime and darkness and gangsters everywhere. And there's a bit where that look, looks at his dark, disturbed diary. And again, it was it was really, <laughs> that was, um, really just, cheesy. Yeah. Those those scenes where he's like looking on the dingy streets, that's in yep. the hate in San Francisco, which is sort of known as the hippie epic, epicentre of San Francisco. And if you go there now, it is so gentrified. I mean, I'm I'm sure hate is, yeah. yeah, the hate Ashby area. Yeah, yeah. And you will not find any of those people there anymore because they can't afford to live there. Um, <laughs> Real estate it's too expensive. Yeah, <laughs> but I look. I, I struggled a little bit with this film. I, I really wanted to, to, to like it because I like this director. But um, I, I as much as I love the soundtrack for this film, I felt like he'd broken into my home and stolen all my music. It really was. I mean, I'm t- showing my age there, but it was all the stuff I bought in the '90s. I, I didn't think the music was used particularly uh, uh, well, um, and. I, that addiction narrative, I think it's a hard one to make interesting. Mm. It's a hard one to shed light on. And 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 that's why I just wasn't interested in following the the, 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 the son character. I was much more wanting to follow how a family responds. I think that and was the more interesting Tierney story. And the character, she's fantastic in the film. And the yep. relationship between her and Steve Carell and how they navigate it. Mm. And that idea of that kind of powerlessness. Yeah, so, so the second wife, the, the second mother, wife. how yeah. she deals with all that. Yeah. yeah, because she's got to con- sort of like have this house and got this... Dev- They've got two new young people, uh, young young people, <laughs> kids, <laughs> children, <laughs> kids living in the house that they've also got to take care of and and keep safe. So the the her kind of stepping up and her kind of almost taking control is it. I think another really interesting part of this film. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen that more. And also the ex-wife as well, played by the great Amy Rand, who mm. um, who um, has played Steve Carell's partner in the TV version and in the American version of The Office as well. I quite like that casting. <gasps> oh, you... Do, that Sorry, just, Amy I, Ryan. Um, that only just hit me when you yeah, said that. That's that they've hilarious. Been yeah. They've been an on-screen oh, couple crazy. before. Um, I mean, addiction narratives are difficult, and I, I, I think this is the lesser of the three main films that have come out this year about addiction and mm. the other two are films where it's not the primary thing. I mean, I think it, uh, we talked about A Star Is Born last mm-hmm. week. I, I did listen to that. It was a really good discussion. I think that's a film that's more interesting in covering addiction. I do too, yeah. And I think Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far On I Foot. I agree. Yep, um, yep, yep. I mean, there, there yeah. are some legitimate criticisms about the aspects of that man's life that were told, but cause they focused on addiction and recovery, but I think that insight into the recovery process was far more insightful and interesting than what we what we see in Beautiful Boy. Mm, mm. Um, I do. I don't know gee, whether... I, would, it, I really wanted to like it more. Just, yeah, yeah. I don't know whether it was a bit shackled by its brief. I do agree with you guys. Uh, I, I thought, though, I, I, I've been a bit reserved about it because I thought it, it's a little bit of a personal taste thing for mm. me. This isn't a movie I would nef- necessarily choose to sit through true i know people who do in, enjoy is not quite the right word or but who get a lot from it mm. um but it's, it's, very, it's a very detached it, film we are very detached from all of the characters i find uh, do you think so I, which which are for mm. me affected my identification with chalamet and okay yeah. I, I felt it was a bit mm. safe i found it a tame i found mm. it a bit basic Mm, well, it could have been. I, I, yeah. It could the, the the drug stuff could have been grittier. It gets grittier, really. In mm. real, that's why I felt that I wasn't well, seeing really his son's Nick's point of view. Because the one big drug scene was the sex in the shower scene. It looked bloody fantastic. <laughs> I was watching it scene going. 
I think I might go and do me some heroin. I mean, I, I don't think that was the idea. I don't think it was, no, Thomas. But that, perhaps, well, you that's got a point. Well, that's why I, th- I, I was thinking of Sauvage, this uh, new French gay film, because that. Uh, that really goes there with the grittiness in terms of the, the drug taking and what it does to your body and how your body responds. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'd like to track that down. I hope, hopefully it gets a, a bigger release in Australia. Mm. We better get, better get out of here, so let me, <laughs> let me wrap things up. Backtrack Boys is on limited release courtesy of Umbrella Entertainment. Halloween is on wide release courtesy of Universal Pictures. Beautiful Boy is on general release courtesy of Transmission Films. You've been listening to Thomas Cordell, Emma Westwood and Stuart Richards. The podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. On next week's show, won't be me, but there will be other people here talking about Michael Moore's new film Fahrenheit 11.9, the Freddie Mercury biopic Bohemian Rhapsody and Korean Zombies in Rampant. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.